Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. I hope and trust that you are all well. Before I get started, I would like to give a very special thank you to the Reform members of Back to Ash. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, Tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Lisa Radford, Ashley Miles, Interscare Wifey, Tina Mead, Stephanie McLaren, Corpse Lover, Gwen Haley, Mana Ash, Normie DW, Christy Elias, Cindy Cleveland, Patty's niece, and Samantha Place. The rest of the Back to Ashes membership family can be seen right here on your screen. If you would like to become a member of Back to Ashes or would like to buy me a coffee as a thank you, all of that information can be found in the description below. With all of that being said, it is time to go back to ashes. For when we arise from the ashes, we are a bigger, brighter, stronger, and happier person in the morning. So, sit back, relax, kick back, grab a snack, or tuck in to get warm, and prepare for this dose of vocal melatonin entitled Unsolved Mysteries, Volume 10. Right after this intro, an ad will play. I'll read the first case, an ad will play. After that, there will be no more ads within this video. On a cold Florida winter day in February 2007, a teenage boy in Sarasota located a human bone sticking out of the ground and an empty lot near Sarasota Middle School. The boy called over his mother, a nurse who recognized the bone as human, and summoned local police. Upon further investigation, police unearthed the body of a woman with long auburn hair buried sideways in the ground. She wore a cotton pullover and a matching skirt, along with two pairs of socks, one blue, the other white. Medical examiners determined that the woman, around 30 to 40 years old, had been the victim of a homicide less than a year prior. Jane Doe has distinctive breast implants, which had been surgically placed in an unusual fashion, which investigators hoped would identify her. At the time of her death, 
She had moderate periodontal disease and likely sustained fractures to her nose and wrists in the past. Reconstructions of the woman were released in hopes of generating leads. Two, no success. With the advent of genetic genealogy, local law enforcement thought that the new technique may help identify Jane Doe, whose case had gone cold. Today, they announced that Jane Doe was Gina Lynn Burris, 39 at the time of her death. Gina was the mother of a young son in elementary school and lived with him and her husband. She had never been reported missing, though she lived in the neighborhood at the time. Her husband, Jay, worked at an auto body shop, mere feet from where she was found, which still stands today. Authorities are seeking information from those who may have known the couple. On February 23, 2018, a 49-year-old man called Anthony Tony Hay disappeared from the town of Holyhead on the Isle of Angsley in North Wales. In that afternoon of Friday, the 23rd of February, Tony had gone shopping with his mom. His son, Zach, was meant to visit Tony later that day, but never went because he got ill with a stomach bug. CCTV cameras recorded Tony near his flat on the 23rd of February, but when worried family members visited Tony's flat a few days later, they found the door was open. The drawers in Tony's bedroom had been rifled through, and his tablet and charger were missing, but Tony was nowhere to be found. When Tony's family contacted the police, they quickly presumed that Tony had left to commit suicide, which his family thought was very unlikely. Instead, Tony's family believed that murder was a more likely reason for Tony's disappearance and that he was failed by the police. Tony's family wonder who has his tablet and why he was on the other side of town. They believe that he may have left his flat late at night to meet someone. Police think that Tony often left his flat in during the evenings, but do not know why he went out late at night. Tony's family are appealing for anyone with information about his disappearance to contact, locate International or the North Welsh Police. On a hot summer day in July 1999, a man went out on his ATV in the North Carolina woods near the small town of Dunn and came across the body of a woman with long curly auburn hair. The woman, likely a late teenager or young adult, wore green jeans and a black spaghetti strap tank top over her dark, lacy bra. A pair of sandals were found near her, though it was uncertain if they belonged to her or not. She had exceptional dental health and painted nails, with both her fingernails and toenails painted iridescent turquoise. Jane Doe died about two months prior, likely from a stab wound to the neck. Investigators noted that the area Jane Doe was found in was directly adjacent to a labor camp known to law enforcement as a hotspot for sex workers to pick up clients. 
Despite the creation of a DNA profile and various reconstructions, including one from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, she remained unidentified. After decades of tips leading to brick walls, in 2021, law enforcement decided that Jane Doe would be a good candidate for the newly popularized technique of genetic genealogy. However, before a complete profile could be made, a tip from the NCMEC's Facebook page suggested that Jane Doe could be Victoria Mia Paradis, a young Honduran woman who had been missing since the winter of 1999. The woman had a daughter living in California who provided a DNA sample confirming the tentative identification. Victoria, who was 21 at the time of her death, was last seen leaving Honduras for the United States to join the father of her daughter, Bayardo Meza, who lived in Rose Hill, North Carolina. Meza, now deceased, told her relatives that Victoria had left him prior to his return to Honduras. She was never reported missing and her death remains unsolved. Warning, this write-up talks about self-harm and suicide. Listening discretion is advised. Richie Edwards disappeared from Cardiff in Wales on February 1st, 1995. On that day, Richie was due to fly to the United States for a promotional tour. By that day, Richie had withdrawn 2,800 pounds from his bank account. Film director Emma Forrest later said, quote, The night before he disappeared, Edwards gave a friend a book called Novel with Cocaine, instructing her to read the introduction, which details the author staying in a mental asylum before banishing, end quote. While staying in a hotel in London, Richie had wrapped a handful of books and videos in a box and included a note which said, I love you. It was then decorated with photos and pictures of Bugs Bunny. He sent this package to his girlfriend, Joe. Richie checked out of the hotel at 7 a.m. the next day, taking with him some Prozac medication, his passport, wallet, and keys. He left behind a packed suitcase, then drove to his flat where he left his passport and Prozac. A couple of weeks after this, a fan spotted him at Newport Station. However, the original timeline set out by investigators has been questioned, as it is believed that a toll booth ticket from Severn Bridge that Ritchie purchased had 2.55 p.m. on it. However, this was later rebuilt to be 2.55 a.m. On February 7th, a taxi driver picked up who he believed was Ritchie up from the King's Hotel. Richie was trying to speak in a Cockney accent, but kept slipping back into his traditional Welsh one. Richie then lay down in the back of the taxi. When the driver reached Blackwood Bus Station, Richie said, quote, This is not the place, end quote, and asked to be driven to Pontypool Bus Station instead. On February 14th, Richie's car was reported abandoned at Severn View Service Station. There was evidence that the car had been lived in. 
theories. Due to the close proximity of Richie's car and the Severn Bridge, it is highly speculated that Richie took his own life by jumping from the bridge as it was known as a suicide site at the time. Richie had severe depression and often self-harmed. However, Richie had once claimed that he'd never take his own life. People speculated that Richie may have faked his own death or simply just disappeared to start a new life. Some sightings of Richie were reported in India and Lanzarote. However, it's confirmed whether these were legit. Richie was legally declared dead in 2008 by absence. What do you believe happened to Richie Edwards? This is a case with very little information. Introduction Raymond Carey Jr., born March 10, 1947, was an ordinary boy who, at the time of 1963, lived with his family, more specifically his father, who was a security technician, his mother, who was a housewife, and one more sister in a great house in Daniel Boulevard in Bloomfield, Hartford, Connecticut. Raymond was a junior at Bloomfield High School and enjoyed sports and played on the basketball and softball teams at Bethel Baptist Church. The Disappearance On October 25, 1963, Raymond decided to watch a movie, so he left his Bloomfield home at around 7.15 p.m. However, his plans changed and he ended up going to a bowling alley and shortly after, to a Pi Kappa Sigma sorority dance at Lathuna Dance Hall in Hartford. In that place, apparently a boy offered Raymond a ride, who refused, saying he already had one home. Another witness said he saw him leaving the dance hall with three other teenagers. It was never specified if these teenagers were identified or interrogated, although some sources say they were not identified. He did not return home. He never had a history of running away from home, so the next day his parents immediately reported him missing. In addition to reporting him missing, they contacted a newspaper in northern Maine. Raymond's father had grown up in Maine, and although Raymond had never visited, they considered the possibility that he might have gone there in search of work. He was dressed in gray suede shoes, dark green sweater, dark green sports shirt, and black pants. He's been missing since October 25, 1963, missing from Hartford, Connecticut. His date of birth is March 10, 1947. His age now would be 76. He is male, white hair color, blonde eye color blue, and a height of 5'6", weighing 130 pounds. Final and personal thoughts. Unfortunately, I think that with so much time that has passed, I don't think the case will be resolved. I don't think he ran away, but maybe he went on an adventure where something went wrong. Maybe those friends he was seen leaving the ball with knew something even though it is apparently not known who they were. 
His father has been deceased for a long time, and his mother at the time of 1997 was still alive. No information about sister or other relatives. In addition to having no history of running away, he apparently had a normal life and no reports of instability at home. I don't know. What do you think? The partial remains of this young boy were found along Glendora Mountain Road, which runs through the San Gabriel Mountains in San Dimas, California, on October 2, 1979. He was buried in a shallow grave. Namus gives his age as three to six years old. NCMEC and Donut Network says three to eight. He was likely to have been Hispanic in life and possibly had white admixture. He had short dark hair or black hair. Doe Network and NCMEC give a postmortem interval of about two weeks. But Namus implies he could have died at any point in the year of 1979. His height is estimated to have been three foot eight inches and his weight was anywhere between 27 and 45 pounds. The remains of another unidentified individual were found six miles away earlier that year, with pieces being found in March and May of 1979. This young man was between 16 and 26. Namus says 19 to 26, NCMEC says 16 to 22. And he was white, between 5 foot 7 inches and 5 foot 10 inches. He had reddish-brown hair, right silver filling, an overbite, and a vaccination scar. It is unknown if the two cases are linked, but the short distance between locations makes it a possibility. Fortunately, the older doe does have DNA available, but the young boy does not. And the only noteworthy thing about his dentals were that he had no dental restorations. Fingerprints and footprints were also unavailable. In May 1993, the remains of a teenage boy or young man were found in an all-American canal in Winter Haven, California. He was most likely either 16 or 17 years old, white, Hispanic, or an admixture of both. He would have stood 5 foot 9 inches in life and weighed around 180 pounds. He had black hair and brown eyes. He is described as having been unrecognizable due to decomposition, but the fact that the eye color could be determined suggests he likely hadn't been dead more than several weeks. There is no information on the availability of his DNA, dentals, and fingerprints. These skeletal remains, which are believed to have belonged to a teenage girl between 13 and 17, were reportedly dug up from a grave in the desert near Whitewater in Riverside County sometime in 1986. The remains were not turned over to the San Bernardino County Coroner until late 1999. Examination confirmed that the body had been buried for years. However, Nothing else about the story can be confirmed. She may have died any time between 1976 and 1996, according to NamUs.
Although, if that story was true, it would have been towards the earlier end of that spectrum. Due to the partial skeletal condition of her remains and the lack of any tissue, it may have possibly even been earlier than 1976. This is one of those cases where NamUs confirms that a DNA profile has not been able to be developed. But it does also say thus far, which means there could still be some DNA currently insufficient for profiling being stored anywhere, which could be retested when better technology comes to be. As of right now, the only way her identity can be established is through either dental records, which NamUs does not subscribe, or a head x-ray. The fact that a head x-ray is a possible means of reliability identifying her leads me to believe Jane Doe may have sustained a head injury in life, which would make an x-ray of her skull particularly distinctive in a way not many missing persons would be. But this is not explicitly outlined. The race of the girl is uncertain. On the 2nd of August, 1975, witnesses saw the young woman or girl sitting on railings ready to jump into traffic. They pulled over and had a conversation with her. They thought she was most likely Hispanic or possibly white. This conversation ended with a girl or woman telling them to go because she was going to jump and then she jumped into the traffic below, ending her life. Her face was left completely unrecognizable due to the traumatic injuries, but a reconstruction was recently created by NCMEC despite this. The coroner determined she was 5 foot 1 inches and 103 pounds. They also concluded that she was actually white, so most likely not Hispanic as the witnesses believed. She is believed to have been between 17 and 21 years of age, most likely younger than 20. And she had very distinctive fingers, both her right and left thumb were crippled, and she had a congenital defect present since the mother's pregnancy on her index fingers. They were shorter than average, and her pointer fingers were also underdeveloped. She had black, wavy, shoulder-length hair and brown eyes. She wore a white blouse with green flowers, Olga sandals, and dark print capri pants. The skull of a young individual of still unknown sex and ethnicity was found at Hell's Angels Clubhouse in Fontana, California, on January 25, 1978. NamUs says they had been dead for years, but also lists the date of death as 1978 given the condition of the remains, just a skull with no soft tissue. I assume the individual had been deceased for years, and the year is a mistake, or perhaps they meant 1968? The individual was between the ages of 15 and 21, both, unfortunately, Nothing else could be ascertained about how the youth may have appeared in life. This case still remains unsolved as certain pieces of evidence are still missing from the crime scenes.
All right, dear listeners, this next case actually gives me the chills as it happened right here in the city that I live in. Here we go. On October 26, 1961, after an evening of studying with friends on the campus of Transylvania University, 19-year-old student Betty Gill Brown got into her car around midnight, presumably headed for home. But she would never arrive. Three hours later, Brown was found dead in a driveway near the center of campus, strangled to death with her own brassiere. Kentuckians from across the state became engrossed in the proceedings as lead after lead went nowhere. Four years later, the police investigation completely stalled. In 1965, a drifter named Alex Arnold Jr. confessed to the killing while in jail on other charges in Oregon. Arnold was brought to Lexington, indicted for the murder of Betty Gill Brown, and put on trial where he entered a plea of not guilty. Arnold said that he approached the car and there were two females inside. The passenger ran away and he attacked and strangled Betty from behind the driver's seat with her own bra. During the trial, the courtroom was packed daily, but witnesses failed to produce any concrete evidence. Arnold was an alcoholic whose memory was unreliable and his confused, inconsistent answers to questions about the night of the homicide did not add up. He was found not guilty due to lack of evidence. Since the trial, new leads have come and gone, but Betty Gale Brown's murder remains unsolved. Accusations were rife in this case, from her parents committing the crime. Sometimes that seems ludicrous from watching the video. Her poor mother searched for hours in the early hours. To Betty being a secret lesbian, something that was never proven and her personal journal didn't hint at. A female waitress said that Betty attended her bar that night with another female, which could maybe point to a female being responsible. She wasn't sexually assaulted. Maybe Betty was driving her home and the passenger made a pass that wasn't reciprocated, and the passenger was afraid of Betty telling others what had happened, especially if she was also from the area. The waitress was eventually told she had the wrong weekend, and nothing more came of that. If the waitress's statement was in fact true, maybe that passenger was the other female that Arnold mentioned, but if that's the case... Why did she never come forward and identify herself? As most of the detectives are likely gone by now, I hope someone one day will be given this as a cold case. I doubt this one can be solved as there was no DNA left that we know of. Maybe the brawl could be retested by today's standards. Fingerprints were the only thing left on scene. I personally don't think Arnold was responsible. I think this was a jailhouse confession by a confused man that went too far. I believe this could have been committed by a local individual who was on foot in the area, maybe another student, maybe even a female. I'm sincerely interested in your opinion on this case that is likely soon to be lost to the depths of time.
Joanne Elaine Coughlin was born in Youngstown, Ohio on June 24, 1953. One of four girls, Joanne was born to a close, tight-knit family. She was a graduate of Woodrow Wilson High School, where she was a member of the flag line and the head majorette. She was an aspiring actress who took tap dance lessons and participated in productions at Youngstown Playhouse. At the time of her disappearance, Joanne was attending Youngstown State University, majoring in counseling, and was employed by the local Jewish Community Center. Joanne was last seen on December 27, 1974. She had told co-workers that day that she planned to go to a local health spa that she had just bought a membership for, then would meet her boyfriend later on in the night. However, Joanne never arrived to meet him. It is unclear if Joanne ever made it to the spa. Her name was signed on the facility sign-in sheet, but it appears no one ever actually cited her there, and Joanne's niece claims the signature does not match her aunt's. The night Joanne went missing, a woman's screams were reportedly heard near some quarries off State Route 224 near the Ohio-Pennsylvania border, and one witness reported seeing a woman being dragged out of a car. Joanne's sister paid for searches of the quarries with money Joanne had recently received from a car accident settlement. The searches turned up nothing. Joanne's apartment was later found to be missing nothing except a small suitcase, a hairdryer, and a bathing suit. Joanne's car, a four-door 1968 Ford Fairlane, has never been located. Joanne's mother, Joanna Coughlin, alerted Joanne's bank about her disappearance in case someone attempted to withdraw her settlement money, which was approximately $3,400. Four days after Joanne vanished, a woman went through the drive-through of the Mahoning National Bank branch in Boardman, Ohio. She attempted to withdraw $800 from Joanne's account, but was told by the teller that she would need to go to the Struthers branch to access the money. The teller would later say that the woman acted strangely and appeared to be high. The woman never went to the Struthers branch. The teller would later contact Mrs. Coughlin to inform her of the interaction, but upon being shown a picture of Joanne, the teller said she was not the same woman who had tried to withdraw. Police were able to identify the woman in January of 1975 and brought her in to be interviewed. She claimed to have received Joanne's bank book from two men who were active in the local drug scene. These men, in turn, claimed to have stolen Joanne's belongings from a party in Warren, Ohio, but claimed to know nothing of her disappearance. The men were believed to be acquaintances of an ex-boyfriend of Joanne's. Joanne's mother wanted to press charges against the woman who had her daughter's bank book, but the authorities encouraged her not to, wanting to potentially use the woman as a witness. Authorities believed that Joanne was likely robbed and murdered and that her body was placed inside her disposed of car, which has never been found. In 2020, Youngstown detective Dave Sweeney was contacted by an individual who claimed to have information on Joanne's case. 
The unidentified caller pointed police toward the disappearance of Frank Sarah Mill, who vanished in July of 1969. Frank was reported missing days after he was last seen, but his report was never entered into law enforcement databases, meaning law enforcement was not aware he was even missing at the time. His car was later recovered on July 14, 1969 in the International Tavern parking lot, but Frank has never been located. It is unclear what the potential connection between these two cases are, or if it exists at all. As of 2023, there have been no new developments in Joanne's case. Beverly Rose Potts was born on April 15, 1941, in Cleveland, Ohio, to parents Robert and Elizabeth Potts. Beverly had an older sister named Anita, who was 22 years old at the time of the case. Robert Potts worked as a stagehand at a local theater, and the family lived in a middle-class neighborhood on Lennett Avenue. Beverly was born two months premature and spent the first few weeks of her life in an incubator. According to the Lost and Found blog, because Beverly was so small and had pinkish skin, her mother began calling her Rosebud. On August 24, 1951, Beverly was enjoying the last of her summer vacation, and she'd be entering the fifth grade soon. The evening of the 24th, there was a shogun at a nearby park called Hollerin Park. A shogun is kind of like a talent show, live performance if you will, with different acts like music and the 24th would be the children's show. Hollerin Park was 11 and a half acres and opened in 1945 and children in the local area liked to play there. The park was about an eighth of a mile from Beverly's house. Beverly had been given permission by her parents to go to the Shogun and could stay until the show was over. Around 7 p.m., Beverly and her best friend, who was also her neighbor, Patsy Swing, took their bicycles to Halloran Park to watch the show. But when the girls realized that the crowd was too large, there were reports that the crowd reached up to 2,000 people to maneuver their bikes, so they went back home to drop off their bikes and then walked back to the park. The Shogun festivities were in full swing. They arrived back at the park at around 8 p.m. While Beverly had permission to stay for the whole show, Patsy had to be home by dark. So at around 8.40 p.m., Patsy told Beverly that she needed to go home and that Beverly should come with her. Beverly told Patsy that she was allowed to stay. Patsy eventually left to go home without Beverly, and she would arrive home at 8.55 p.m. Patsy would later state that she would last see Beverly as she turned around one more time in the company of a small, plump woman who had a hand on Beverly's shoulder. It is believed that Beverly's parents didn't know that Patsy had to be home earlier. When Patsy arrived home, she told her father that was a little upset that Beverly didn't want to come home with her. The Shogun ended sometime between 9.30 and 9.40 p.m., and when Beverly didn't arrive home by 10 p.m., 
her family went out into the neighborhood to look for her. Robert and Elizabeth Potts believe that maybe Beverly lost track of time and forgot to come home. The night before, August 23rd, Beverly had lost track of time while playing with her cousin. In fact, Beverly was in trouble due to this incident, and the only reason she had permission to go to the show was because she'd helped her mother with a chore. But when they didn't find her at midnight, her reported Beverly missing to the police. According to the Lost and Found blog, quote, they phoned police, but accounts said it took three phone calls for them to arrive. Police arrived around 12.30 a.m., and began a thorough search of the Potts residence to no avail, end quote. Police initially believed that Beverly was hiding in the Potts' house for some reason. Beverly wasn't found in the house. The Potts' family went into a panic. What followed would be called the biggest search in Cleveland history. Thousands of city residents would help look for Beverly in streams, parks, and empty fields. 1,500 tips also came in. Many came to nothing, but there was one that had significance. At around 9.30 on the night of the Shoagon, a 13-year-old boy who knew Beverly saw her walking across the park in the direction of her house. The boy knew it was Beverly because she had a distinctive walk. It was duck-like, meaning her feet pointed outwards when she walked. Halloran Park was very dark at night because of the large number of trees which obscured the streetlights, and some vagrants frequented the park at night. Even with all the people in the park due to the Shoagon, it didn't seem like a place where little kids should be alone at night. Beverly was described as a shy girl who was especially cautious around men and strangers, so her family and the police believed that she wouldn't have gotten into a strange person's car. In the Charlie Project write-up, it states that Beverly was specifically warned against talking to strange men, but not women, and since no one in the crowd heard a scream or saw a struggle, one theory is that Beverly was taken by a woman maybe even the plump lady Patsy saw earlier, or someone she knew. It was also determined that Beverly had a good home life with a family who loved her, so she didn't have a reason to run away. When school started up again, the police spoke to many of Beverly's classmates to see if they knew anything. Throughout the years, there have been many false leads in Beverly's case, and her parents got many prank phone calls and reporters camped out in front of the Potts' home for weeks. One strange phone call took place in November of 1951, when Lester Swing, the father of Beverly's friend Patsy, told police he'd gotten a call from a person claiming that he'd hit Beverly with his car. The caller told Mr. Swing to bring out Patsy to a local place in downtown Cleveland in the similar clothing to what Beverly was wearing, and he'd tell the police where Beverly was. However, this lead seems to have come to nothing. A man named William Henry Redman was questioned in Beverly's case. Redman was an Ohio native and carnival worker who had been indicted for the murder of another young girl. While in prison, he told people that he'd, in fact, killed three young girls. 
When Cleveland police asked about Beverly Potts, Redmond wouldn't admit to anything, but he was in the general area at the time. By 2000, the Cleveland Plain dealer began getting letters from an unidentified man claiming that he killed Beverly the night she vanished, and was only confessing now because he was dying. But according to the Charlie Project, quote, the letter's author promised to turn himself in to the public on August 24, 2001 the 50th anniversary of Beverly's disappearance, but shortly before this date, he sent a third letter to the Cleveland Plain Dealer saying he had to go to a nursing home and thus could not keep his promise to reveal his identity, end quote. An investigation was launched into the mystery letter writer, but other than the fact they were written by the same person, and this person was probably elderly, this person was not identified. There seems to be a split on whether these letters were legit or not, though. Beverly Rose Potts' disappearance remains a mystery. At the time she vanished, Beverly Potts was 10 years old, a white female standing at about 4 feet 11 inches tall and weighed 90 pounds. Beverly had strawberry blonde hair cut into a bob, although all photos available make her hair look dark and she had blue eyes. Beverly was wearing blue jeans with a zipper on the side and no label, red cotton underwear, a white undershirt, a red sports shirt, and a navy blue poplin jacket with torn pockets and the label taken out. Beverly also had a yellow gold ring and was wearing size 5 carry broke loafers. Beverly's sister, Anita, would state that her parents were devastated by Beverly vanishing, and their mother turned to drinking and died five years after Beverly went missing. Robert Potts died in 1970, and Anita kept hope alive until her own death in 2006. I also believe that whatever happened to Beverly, someone she knew must have been involved since she was so nervous around strangers. Ever since I hear this case presented on the podcast True Crime Garage, it's haunted me. Beverly's case remains unsolved. It has been 36 years since Kathy's body was found on a popular, reportedly safe trail in a small town in northern Arizona known as Prescott. Despite being a moderately difficult trek, Thumb Butte Trail number 33 is a heavily used hiking trail in the Prescott National Forest. The forest is known for its mild weather, cool ponderosa pines, and a variety of trails that offers hikers, horseback riders, and mountain bikers several routes of varying difficulties. However, Thumbroot Trail number 33 is open to hikers only. Kathy Sposito was 23 years old and new to the Prescott area. She had moved from Brooklyn, New York to attend Prescott College. Because very little is known about Kathy, we can only theorize as to what motivated such a drastic move, but Prescott College is a member of the Eco League, 
a six-college consortium of ecologically focused liberal arts colleges dedicated to modeling sustainability throughout their operations. Although there aren't any New York colleges associated with the consortium, it's still quite unique. Since its inception in 1966, attending students have always had a reputation for being passionate about social justice and the environment as well, as possessing in a keen sense of adventure. Kathy was certainly adventurous. She had moved across the country and friends knew she enjoyed mountain biking and walked along many of the trails near the college. According to Yavapai County Sheriff's Office Detective Ross Diskin, she was also an artist on the side. The night before her death, Kathy had dinner with friends in Prescott and mentioned her plan to hike Thumb Butte. On June 13, 1987, at 7 a.m., Kathy rode her mountain bike to the trailhead and began her planned hike. A short time later, a fellow group of hikers who also happened to be on the trail heard screams and raced to help, but they couldn't reach her in time. Twenty minutes later, Kathy's body was found with no one else in sight. It was later determined that she died as a result of blunt force trauma. The case has been a priority for YCSO, but there are few leads and they are holding their cards close to their chest. While specific details on the homicide, other than the manner of death, have not been released, the detective mentioned she was, quote, brutally, and I mean brutally, killed, end quote. Police have also mentioned that they are looking for a small caliber handgun that was involved in the homicide. They believe it could have been dumped in the area between Thumb Butte Trail and Castle Canyon. Any possible motives have never been released. YCSO is offering a $10,000 reward for any information on the murder. They are hopeful that new DNA technology can help solve this cold case. Last year, Kathy's brother, Sal Spacito, visited the crime scene with Detective Diskin to share any updates on the investigation and touch base with the family. Her brother asks that anyone with information on this case to do the right thing and contact the sheriff's office or silent witness. If you or anyone you know has any information that you think could be relevant, please contact the Yavapai County Silent Witness Program. It's never too late to come forward and bring Kathy's family some peace. Call Yavapai Silent Witness at one 800 932 3232 or submit a tip at www.yavapaysw.com All callers are anonymous and will not have to testify. On June 20th, 1975, 23-year-old Marjorie Sue Fithian packed a single suitcase, picked up her 18-month-old son, Dylan Sage Fithian, and made her way to the bus station in Greeley, Colorado. Marjorie and Dylan, who now goes by Sage, had a fun, family-oriented weekend planned. They were traveling to Denver in order to spend the weekend with her aunt and uncle, 
planning to return on Tuesday, June 24th. The pair made it safely to their destination, enjoyed quality time with her family, and on Tuesday morning, Madri's uncle had dropped her off at the bus station to board a bus home to Greeley at around 7 a.m. Madri and Sage never made it on that bus. At around 9 a.m. and about 50 miles away from Denver, 24-year-old ranch hand Terry Furnish was working the Painter Ranch in Rogan, Colorado. While his family had managed the ranch for nearly 20 years, he had only been there visiting from South Dakota and just helping out around where he called home. The land the ranch sat on was large and vast, and about one mile into his drive from one part of the ranch to another. Terry spotted something. Lying in the gravel road along Weld County Road 386 laid a woman who was not moving. Terry stopped his pickup truck and got out to inspect, walking upon a disturbing scene that he states still haunts him to this day. Lying in the gravel, an auburn-haired woman laid motionless with a gunshot wound to her face. Sitting beside her in a pile of broken glass sat a small toddler clutching her hand. Panicked and unsure of what to do, Terry picked up the child and moved him out of the broken glass and got back into his pickup, knowing that another pickup was only a quarter mile away. This truck had a two-way radio in which he could call for help. Terry sped down the dirt road, rushing to make the call, and returned to the boy. He picked the child up and held him close until help arrived. Soon, the Weld County deputies, Colorado state officials, and a handful of other ranch hands arrived on scene. Looking back on the situation, Terry said this to a local newspaper. Quote, I didn't know what to do. He said, I didn't know whether to put him in the pickup, but I set him just out of the glass. You just don't know what would have happened to the little guy and his mom, too. It's just so unfortunate. It was so remote then. The ambulance took a long time, over an hour if I remember right, end quote. Officers spread out and canvassed the area nearby the woman. They found a spent 25 caliber shell casing. Up the road, they discovered her suitcase. Inside were clothing for her and the child, as well as a slip of paper with a phone number. The number belonged to the woman's mother, Betty, who identified the deceased woman as Marjorie Sue Fithian. Police questioned Terry, who stated that he had not seen nor passed any cars along the road that morning. They also asked local residents of Rogan if they had seen Marjorie or Sage at all that morning. A handful of residents claimed they had seen the pair at a cafe having breakfast earlier that day. Other locals claimed to have seen a car in the area around the time of the shooting, stating it was an early 1960s model car with a yellowish body and black roof. With no real clues leading in any conclusive direction, theories took hold about what may have happened to cause Marjorie's death. Some stated that her death was due to drugs. The only thing tying to this loose theory was that Marjorie had a history of using marijuana, and early on it was considered that she may have transported drugs from the Greeley area to Denver. 
This theory was further implemented when a local drug dealer came forward. This man claimed that he had picked up Marjorie and Sage at the Denver bus station that June morning because Marjorie was supposed to be transporting for him. This man claimed that Marjorie failed to produce the drugs or money and that he witnessed another drug dealer kill Marjorie in retaliation. A year and a half later, the man redacted his statement. In turn, investigators interviewed the man after administering sodium pentothal, or truth serum, where he claimed he had made the entire story up. As it turned out, when this man was first initially interviewed, he was left alone in the interview room with Marjorie's open case file, where he took it upon himself to read the documents and learn the details of her death. He stated that he has fabricated his story because he was angry at the man he claimed was Marjorie's killer for narking on him. The idea that Marjorie may have hitched a ride was also looked at, with no leads panning out in that direction. Her cousins, who were with her the weekend she was in town visiting, had also been spoken to, but they claimed that nothing out of the ordinary had happened, and they didn't know who could have killed Marjorie. Sadly, Sage, who was now 50 years old, and over double his mother's age when she died, doesn't remember anything about her other than what he learned from family. Sage knows that his mother had a love for the arts. She was a poet, an artist, and absolutely loved music. He stated that his own children have an interest in the arts, which he believes came from his mother. After Marjorie's death, Sage went to live with his aunt and grandmother. Sadly, no one has ever been charged in the death of Marjorie Sue Fithian, and no justice has been served. With a lack of any true leads, investigators now believe it is possible she was the victim of a serial killer. However, records show that no serial killer was active during the time and place that Marjorie was murdered. Quote, I wish I knew more. I really do. I've thought about it a thousand times. Had I come up on it right when it happened and the people would have been there, you wonder what you would have done then because there's probably a good chance you would have been shot at also. It's a sad thing, and you'd like to see closure, but with it being so long ago, it's a hard thing. But they do that every once in a while, end quote, said Terry Furnish, 2022. Gatycadia, murder of a 22-year-old aspiring rapper whose body was found engulfed in flames at a cemetery remained unsolved. Gatycadia was 22 years old when he was murdered. His body was found at a historic cemetery in Providence County, Rhode Island, 10 years ago, and the person responsible for his death has yet to be brought to justice. At around 10.30 p.m. on March 20, 2013, firefighters were called to the Poxet Cemetery in Cringston on Dyer Avenue about a brush fire near the entrance. When they extinguished the fire, they discovered the body, which was later identified through fingerprints as that of Cadia. He was living in the Providence area and had an eight-month-old daughter at the time of his death. 
Kadia was in the process of turning his life around, according to his instructor at the Institute of the Study and Practice of Nonviolence. He was one class away from obtaining his GED. Quote, I think the stress of not having a place to stay recently had really taken a toll, but he would still come for the GED classes. That kind of stamina is pretty great. He was a leader. If someone missed a class, he would say, let's call them. The teachers feel a terrible loss. His classmates feel a terrible loss. End quote, said the executive director of the school. He was also an aspiring rapper known as Young Shod and had several music videos uploaded to YouTube. According to the medical examiner's office, Katie's autopsy showed that his death was caused by ligature strangulation, which occurred before his body was set on fire. The detective stated that it is their belief Katie was murdered somewhere else before his body was brought to the cemetery and set on fire. They also believe that Katie's murder may have been gang-related, as he was reportedly affiliated with the C-Block gang in Providence. However, Katie's family members stated that he wasn't affiliated with any gangs in the area. WPRI News reported that one relative said, quote, I just want them to know that he was gentle. He was so loving. He was caring. He was one of a kind, end quote. Anyone with information regarding the unsolved murder of Gandhi Kadia is encouraged to contact the Cranston Police Department at 401-942-2211. All right, dear listeners, this brings a close to These Unsolved Mysteries, Volume 10. I'm going to wait and release another one later this month. If you are sleeping, I hope Slumberland is treating you kindly. If you're awake, I hope you've enjoyed these cases. Until next time, please take care of yourselves. I'll be reading to you soon. Have yourself a good morning, a good afternoon, or a good night.
Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.